All right, we'll go ahead and turn to Matthew 5. If you've been with us, you know that we're in a teaching series called Climb. We're studying through the Sermon on the Mount. This is week 11. And, um, you know, we like to go through either books of the Bible or do things to where we kind of study the Scripture in context and verse by verse sometimes, sometimes chapter by chapter. But we're in Matthew 5, um, Sermon on the Mount. And this week we are in a portion of the Scripture that we've actually either mentioned or even covered some one way or the other. And I'm going to go ahead and read this section of Scripture, and, um, and you'll see what I mean. This is in 17, Matthew 5, starting in verse 17, and then we'll, we'll go through 20 is the section we're going to kind of cover. It says, do, and this is Jesus talking, big red letters, right? Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. Some of your versions say, do not think that I have come to abolish or undo um, or to get rid of. That, that word undo has really gotten me um, uh, thinking this week because it makes me think of a knot. You know, like you, you tie a knot and Jesus is saying, I didn't come to undo that knot. Okay, there is a usefulness to that knot. I didn't come to undo it. You know, just get a nice clean rope again. I didn't come to undo that or to get away with it, uh, to get away from it. He said, I didn't come to abolish it, but I came to fulfill it. Now, this is one of those scriptures that we have made reference to one way or the other over the last, you know what, kind of all the time. I I mention this all the time, but especially in this teaching series, that Jesus didn't come to do away with the law, but he came to fulfill the law. Um, Didn't come to undo it, but he came to make better use of it. Um, That word fulfill, it actually means to to complete something or to bring it to an accomplishment. And he he meant that. I came to accomplish what the law was all about. about. But it also means um, uh, to fill as in a container or a whole. And if you've been through physiology, you know that's an example of of how we make sense of what the new covenant is um, versus, and not really versus, but in complement, to complement the old covenant the old covenant the new covenant when jesus uh, when god gave the old covenant to the people of israel it's like he gave them a cup okay and for for you to think that or the jewish people at that time to think that um, he was trying to do away with that which is exactly what they thought here's this guy on the scene and he's trying to do away with the law well that think about the law whether it was the whether it was the um, things that had to do with the ceremonial cleaning and the worship and all that, or whether it had to do with the civil law, the things that kept the people of Israel in order, uh, whether it had to do with the moral law. When we say the law, it's not just the Ten Commandments. It's all the things that basically the Jewish people lived by. It was their life. And so for Jesus to say, you know, and teach the things that he was teaching that sounded a little different, these guys are thinking, he's here to steal our life. But he's like, no, 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 you're not getting that. You're not getting it. I'm not coming to steal your life. I'm actually coming to give you a little more meaning to your life. When God gave the old covenant, the Mosaic covenant, the law of Moses, it was like he gave them this nice, beautiful coffee cup, this ornate coffee cup. And it was a good cup. It was, if God gave it, it's obviously good, right? Now, if the devil had given them that cup, we might be like, we don't need that cup. But God gave them that cup. He said, this is a cup for you. And that's the, they had that cup for all those years. And then Jesus comes on the scene and he said, listen, I didn't come to do away with this cup. This is a good cup. I came to fill it up. I didn't come to do away with the cup. I came to fill it up. And and that's what Jesus is trying to say here. Listen, because the people thought that he was trying to take their heritage away from them, their their traditions, their law, um, really their religion, all of that. And I think 
I thought about this this, this I thought about this this week. There's probably a lot of things that the Roman leaders, the, the religious Jewish leaders, um, including the crucifixion, but there's a lot of things that probably hurt Jesus. You know, got, got him, um, you know, like, oh, frazzled or whatever. Maybe not frazzled, but hurt his heart. I don't know if there's anything that would have hurt Jesus' heart more than thinking that he came to do away with the very word that his father gave. In fact, he is the word, right? We know it says that in John. In the beginning, the word um, it, the word um, was with God. He was with God in the beginning and all that stuff. And so I just thought about how this probably hurt his heart. And it made me think, we're going to a wedding tomorrow. We're leaving for a wedding in the morning down in Austin. And it made me think, what if we got to that wedding and the ceremony has started and the, and the bride has made her way down the aisle and she's finally standing there with her groom, and the groom's looking, and he's watching her that whole way, and like, you know, she's coming, and that whole thing, and she gets there, and they're standing here like this. I guess the groom would be on this side. I've done a lot of weddings. You know what I mean? And so the groom's here, and they're looking at each other's eyes, and then somebody, some heckler in the crowd stood up and said, hey, you're not here for her. You just want some cake. I mean, if it was me, I'd probably be really, really, really mad. But what an insult. You guys hear what I'm saying? I mean, he went through the trouble of buying the ring. He went through the trouble of asking dad's permission. He went through the trouble of waiting all those months before he could be with his bride. You know what I'm saying? I mean, there's a lot of... And then for somebody to say, you're just here for the cake. And that's essentially what they're saying to Jesus. You're just here for the cake. He's like, no, 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 you're not getting it. I'm here for my bride. I have I've been waiting all this time to come for my bride. Please don't misunderstand why I'm here. And if you think about it, he goes through, um, and all this, there's a flow I told you to this, but he goes through the trouble of really trying to explain that. Do not think that I came to abolish the law of the prophets. I didn't come to abolish, but to fulfill. For truly I say to you, unless heaven and earth pass away, that's a big analogy, Unless heaven and earth pass away, or until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass from the law until all is accomplished. Now, right here, he's trying to give a word picture. Not the smallest letter or even a stroke shall pass from the law. Heaven and earth would have to disappear before that would happen. But even when it does, that still wouldn't be my heart's desire. And when he says that, not even the smallest letter would disappear. He's actually referring to the 10th letter of the alphabet, the Hebrew alphabet. It's called a yod. Anybody ever heard of yod? You know, not a yodel. You know, not one of the, oh yeah. That's what I'm talking about right there, a, a yod. And this yod was the 10th letter, and I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this because you can get real geeky on it real quick because there's all kinds of symbolisms, all kinds of stuff. I mean, it's the 10th letter. All kinds of stuff in Scripture about the tenth, ten commandments, you know. Ten, I mean, all kinds of stuff. I won't even go into it. But this, this right here is is the tenth letter. It's called a yod, and this is very. When you look at Hebrew writing, in fact, do you have another slide? I didn't even know you guys had this up. Y'all are amazing. Okay, well, this right here is the old, like the um, pictograph of, um, like the pictograph version of. Before they had the writing, it was just pictures, you know. And you see the very last thing that looks like an arm or a hand? That's actually a yod before they came up with the, the actual text or whatever. It was pictures. And if you look, it looks like a, an arm and a hand st- extending out, and that's to represent the mighty hand of God. So if, um, if nothing else, 
A yod is symbolic. There's all kinds of symbolism in Hebrew stuff, but it's symbolic of God, you know? He's like, God would have to disappear before I came to get rid of the law. I mean, he's making intense statements here. Go to the next picture, though. You see right there, this is the Hebrew word for Yeshua. Notice that on the far right is a yod. And you'll, you don't know this, but I'm telling you this. The yod is the only letter in Hebrew that floats. It's the only one. See how it just floats above everything else? And you'll find a yod in, in almost every word in Hebrew. I mean, it's, it's there. But it's the only one that floats. And that's, again, it represents God. You know, it's, it's all kinds of symbolism. Go to the next thing. What else do I got in there? I don't even remember. This is the Hebrew word for God. You can see it's in there too. See that? It's the only one that floats. Okay, you can get off all that geeky stuff. But my point is, is he's trying to say that, um, I mean, even God himself, he's speaking their language. The smallest letter in the Hebrew alphabet would have to pass. You know, and also the, the, um, the smallest letter, you, you know that God chose the smallest nation of the world, smallish, the smallest nation of the world to pick as the one that he would bring the light of the world into the, in, into the darkness. And so it's also that Yod is also symbol, symbolic of Israel. So he's saying you, you as a nation would have to disappear before I'm trying to get rid of the law here. You guys hear what I'm saying? I mean, he's, make, he's trying to draw these pictures and, and all this kind of stuff for them to understand. And then look what he says. He says, um, the smallest letter or the smallest stroke. I do have one more thing to share with you. You have the next picture, the little, yeah, you see right there? This right here is called a, uh, uh, hold on, what is it called? Uh, Yes, a dalet or dalet. It's called a dalet, okay? And if you'll notice how right there it extends like it's over and the line is over a little over to the left, go to the next thing, which is called a resh. That one doesn't. Okay, go back to the other one. Notice how they're almost exactly the same except for the Dalit or the Dalit has a little thing that extends a little bit. Okay, go to the next one, the Resh. It does, go, yeah, that's fine. You can leave that just like that. <laughs> yeah, I had forgotten that I put all this together. I'm so excited about teaching this. But if you'll notice that the only thing that separates those two things right there is just what you would call a little tittle, a little slash, a little thing. I mean, the only thing. He's saying, he's basically saying, pay attention. I would not come to get rid of even the smallest detail of the law. We're talking about two letters, the fourth letter and the 20th letter, okay? I, wouldn't, I didn't come to get rid of the yod. I didn't come to even the little thing that separates the Dalit and the Resh, okay? He's, making, he's, he's telling them, he's like, oh, man, he's really serious. He wouldn't even, not one stroke would he do to get rid of that. He's serious about the law, He's serious about, not so much about what it is, but what it pointed to, which is him. I am the groom, and I'm coming for you. You are my bride. Look what he goes on to say. Who then annuls, whoever then annuls one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever keeps and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Again, he's like, I'm telling you, if you try to get rid of the law, you're, you're, you're a bum. You're a loser. Anybody that tries to get rid of that, I'm telling you, it's not good. That is not my intent. Okay, I'm, I'm begging the point here, but so is he. I'm not trying to get rid of the law. I've come to fulfill it. And then he says this, and this is something I've referred to in one of the other teachings in this series. For I say to you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, I've used this several times in context of building to where we're at, but I want you to notice where it's at. It's after... It's after 
him saying, I didn't come to do away with the law. And I want you to understand, when he says that, here's what he's saying. You, your righteousness has got to uh, surpass that of the Pharisees. Please understand that one of the things that he is saying is that the Pharisees have been interpreting the law for all these years, and you guys are inundated with of that law. But I'm telling you, unless your righteousness which can include your understanding of the law because your righteousness is based upon your understanding of the law. How many of you understand that if you drink, it's a sin? How many of you understand that from Scripture? I mean, it is an abomination. You do that, and, and you have entered into purgatory or something. You know what I mean? See, right there in one phrase, I just gave two wiggity-whack interpretations of Scripture. You guys hear what I'm saying? And you got people walk around. I can't, I can't even, if I even look at alcohol, I'm not, you know what I mean? It's like, whoa. Now, obviously, you drink a lot of that stuff and you're going to die, you know. But my point is, you can see right there how, how quickly, and that's what Jesus is saying. You have been living your life in this way and in this fashion and this order simply because of the way some people have been telling you that this is what God has been saying all those years. All I'm trying to do is tell you what God has really been trying to say all those years. Unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you won't even enter into the kingdom of heaven. And we're not going to go into all these right now, but I want you to look at what he goes into next. You have heard the ancients say, you shall not commit murder. I tell you, if you even look at someone angrily, if you have anger in your heart, and he goes into this whole thing, then you have committed murder. See, the, the Pharisees are saying, you murderer! Ah! And Jesus is like, I mean, that's true. But what the Pharisees have missed is that you don't even need to harbor anger in your heart. He goes on to say, to talk about, I mean, several of them. Actually, the next, I mean, quite a bit of stuff. Talking about adultery. You've heard it say, you shall not commit adultery. But I tell you, if you even look at someone lustfully in your heart, you've committed adultery. Remember the, the Pharisees and the religious leaders wanted to stone that lady for being caught in the act of adultery? And they try to test Jesus and, and trap him and say, what, we got, what should we do to her? And Jesus is like, writing in the sand. And he says, you know what? He who has no sin cast the first stone. Everybody starts backing up. I think we're about to miss a movie or something. You know, they get out of... <laughs> but that's the point. You know, Jesus is like, you know, you guys are wanting to crucify this lady, stone her for committing adultery when pff, I know what's in half of y'all's heart. And Jesus is appealing. He's, he's trying to appeal to the greater point of the law. I'm like, why would I want to do away with the very thing that outlines God's heart for pursuing him? But you do have to understand that it is me that fulfills those things. So, uh, you know, I've talked a lot about that. And what I want to do is I want to jump over to Romans 3 and 4. I, I can't get Romans 3 and 4 out of my head and out of my heart because I've been just dwelling on it, um, meditating on it, chewing on it for the last few days. And I think this really really um, 
Paul really gets the heart of what Jesus is talking about here in Matthew 5, 17 through 20. Okay? And I'm just going to, please forgive me, but I'm just going to read this. In fact, I'm going to read it out of the NLT. Because it can be kind of a complicated sounding thing, but it's really not. But NLT, excuse me, NLT helps with that. Um, I'm going to start in verse 9. Romans 3, verse 9. Please bear with me. You're welcome to read along or just close your eyes and pretend like it's bedtime. No, 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 no. Don't do that. Saturday night. Well then, should we conclude that we Jews, you know what, I'm going, to, I'm going to go back even more. No, I'll start there. Well then, should we conclude that we Jews are better than others? No, not at all. For we have already shown that all people, whether Jews or Gentiles, are under the power of sin. As the scripture says, no one is righteous, not even one. No one is truly wise. No one is seeking God. All have turned away. All have become useless. No one does good, not a single one. Their talk is foul like the stench from an open grave. Their tongues are filled with lies. Snake venom drips from their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. They rush to commit murder. Destruction and misery always follow them. They don't know where to find peace. They have no fear of God. Obviously, now this is where I actually wanted to pick up, but that's okay. Obviously, the law applies to those to whom it was given for its purpose is to keep people from having excuses and to show that the entire world is guilty before God. You might have heard it said like this, the law brings about the knowledge of sin, right? The law brings about the knowledge of sin. For no one can ever be made right with God by doing what the law commands. The law simply shows us how sinful we are. But now God has shown us a way to be made right with Him without keeping the requirements of the law as was promised in the writings of Moses and the prophets long ago. We are made right with God haven't you, have you guys asked that question before? I mean, even though we kind of know, don't you really just kind of continually ask that question? I just want to be, I want to be close to God. That's another way of saying I want to be right with God, isn't it? He says, um, for no one can ever be made right with God by doing what the law commands. The law simply shows us how sinful we are. But now God has shown us a way to be made right with him without keeping the requirement of the law as it was promised in the writings of Moses and the prophets long ago. We are made right with God by placing our faith in Jesus Christ. Everybody say that. By placing, come on, by placing our faith in Jesus Christ. And this is true for everyone who believes, no matter who we are. That means there's no one in here that this doesn't apply to you. For everyone has sinned. We all fall short of God's glorious standards. We know that one. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Yet God, with undeserved kindness, declares that we are righteous. Did you hear that? He declares we are righteous. He did this through Christ Jesus, when he freed us from the penalty of our sins. For God presented Jesus as the sacrifice for sin. People are made right with God when they believe that Jesus sacrificed his life, shedding his blood. The sacrifice shows that God was being fair when he held back and did not punish those who sinned in times past. 
For he was looking ahead and including them in what he would do in this present time. God did this to demonstrate his righteousness. For he himself is fair and just. And he declares sinners to be right in his eyes when they believe in Jesus. Did you hear that? He declares sinners to be right in his sight when they believe in Jesus. Can we boast then? I don't think so. Not that we have done anything to be accepted by God. No, because our acquittal is not based on obeying the law. It is based on faith. Let me say that again. Our acquittal or us being released from prison from guilt is not based on obeying the law. It is based on faith. And this is where he was trying to lead them. His conversation there in Matthew 5. You guys, the whole thing, that you've, the way you've been thinking and working, I'm shifting it. I'm not getting rid of it. I'm shifting it. I'm really, I'm completing it. Um, after all, is God the God of the Jews only? Isn't he also the God of the Gentiles? Gentiles being anyone who's not Jewish. Of course he is. There is only one God and he makes people right with himself only by faith, whether they are Jews or Gentiles. Well then, if we emphasize faith, does this mean that we can forget about the law? Well, that's kind of the common question, isn't it? If we emphasize faith, do we forget about the law? Of course not. In fact, only when we have faith do we truly fulfill the law. Now remember, he's talking to Jewish people that their whole lives is centered around the law. Ceremonial laws, civil laws, moral laws, all that. He's saying it only makes sense whenever you're living it by faith in Jesus, the fulfillment of the law. Abraham, and this is chapter 4, and this is where I want to show you something specific that it maybe will help really clarify something. It has me, not that I didn't already know it um, theologically, doctrinally, but I don't know how far into my heart it had seeped. Now, this was the case with the Pharisees. There were things that they had in their head, even though it wasn't quite squared away there either, but it certainly hadn't really seeped into their heart. And this is our problem, really, as the American church, isn't it? Got a lot of head stuff, not a whole lot of heart stuff. So please listen to me. Abraham, does everybody know who Abraham? Father Abraham had many sons. I am one of them. And so are you. Okay. Abraham was, humanly speaking, the founder of our Jewish nation. Remember that 10th letter, the smallest letter? Israel or Abraham, they weren't Israel then, but Abraham was just a small guy. But God chose that small guy and created this nation, which was almost always the smallest, out of the world to, be the, to bring the light of the world into the world. What did Abraham discover about being made right with God? In other words, let's how, see how it worked for him. If his good deeds had made him acceptable to God, he would have had something to boast about. But that was not God's way. For the scripture tells us Abraham believed God and God counted him as righteous because of his faith. When people work, their wages are not a gift, but something they have earned. But people are counted as righteous, not because of their work, but because of their faith in God who forgives sinners. David also spoke of this when he described the happiness of those who were declared righteousness without working for it. It says, Oh, what joy for those whose disobedience is forgiven, whose sins are put out of sight. Yes, what joy for those whose record the Lord has cleared of sin. That's a great picture. God clears our record of sin from us. 
It wasn't our works that did that. God did that based upon our faith in Jesus who was the sacrifice for that sin. Now, is this blessing only for the Jews or is it also for the uncircumcised Gentiles? Well, we have been saying that Abraham was counted as righteous by God because of his faith. But how did this happen? Was he counted as righteous only after he was circumcised? If you don't know what circumcision is, it's basically, without getting too graphic, it was a, it was a, a mark of the flesh that Hebrew men had to take to, as it was a, in, in Genesis 17, it says, this is a sign of my covenant with you, that you will be circumcised in the flesh of your skin. Okay, so it was a sign. If you know more details on that, you can keep it to yourself. All right? So, where were we? Um, how did this happen? Was he counted as righteous only after he was circumcised? Or was it before he was circumcised? You ever thought about that question? You're like, oh gosh, oh, Father Abraham had me son. He was one of them. I had one of them, so he... It doesn't talk about that in the song. Go! <laughs> I doubt many songs are written about circumcision. <laughs> if you think about it. Anyway, how did this happen? Was he counted as righteousness only after he was circumcised? Or was it before he was circumcised? Clearly, God accepted Abraham before he was circumcised. Now, I will stop right here and say one of the things, there's many things that the circumcision represented, but one of the things it pointed to Notice in, in Genesis 17, it says, This shall be the sign of my covenant with you, that you shall be circumcised in the foreskin of your flesh. The key word being flesh. One of the things that that represents is flesh. Paul's, most of Paul's writings talks about the battle between spirit and flesh. One of the things right here that God is doing is he's emphasizing flesh. And it points, that right there even points ahead to the Mosaic covenant, the, the covenant that God made with uh, Moses, the um, sacrificial system and all that, with the whole thing, the whole way that you could be made right with God had to do with you cutting the flesh of, of animals and burning them on altars. It was all about the works of your flesh. Not just about the flesh of the animal, but my hands had to do all that work. My hands had to be bloody. My hands had to pick up that whole cow and put it up on the deal. It was all about work, 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 work. All that time God is saying, it's hard to get to me. Okay? This is all they've known is work, 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 work. Where was I? Circumcision was a sign that Abraham already had faith and that God had already accepted him and declared him to be righteous. You guys hear that? Circumcision was a sign that Abraham already had faith, had already believed, had already been accepted, had already been approved. And God said, sweet, you are somebody I can make covenant with. And to show that you are in covenant with me, let's, let's put there a sign on it. One of the things real quick that, we, that with us, and I'll just go ahead and say it now. I don't know if it's the right place, but I'll say it. One of the things that circumcision is a, is a picture of for us is the Holy Spirit. When you ever thought about that? Really? Because that's a weird analogy. But think about it. This shall be a sign of my covenant. This shall be a sign that you belong to me. This is how 
others will know that you're mine. Now, there's something that sounds very similar to that that Jesus said. They will know you belong to me by your... They will know you are mine because of your... Your love for one another. Do you know what love is the first of? The fruit of the Spirit. The fruit or the sign or the proof that we belong to God. Do you guys see that? All the way back there with Abraham. And what did I say that's at war? Flesh and spirit. Flesh and spirit. We want to work for it, but God says you don't have to work for it. I already worked for it. My son, his flesh was cut. He was the sacrifice. He did the work. You are accepted Not because of anything you've done, otherwise you'd have a reason to brag about it. You were accepted merely on the merit, the basis, the work of my son Jesus, who was the Messiah, who was the Lamb of God, who was slain. If you believe in him, confess him as Lord, believe, put your faith in him, you're good. Now what I do require is a little love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. Not that they have to be downloaded right then, but the desire to grow in those things should be evident day by day, week by week, month by month, and by golly, please, at least year by year. Amen? We good? Let's keep reading. Circumcision was a sign that Abraham already had faith. The Holy Spirit, that's another way of saying, the Holy Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, the fruits of the Spirit is a sign that we already have faith and that God had already accepted him and declared him to be righteous even before he was circumcised. So Abraham is the spiritual father of those who have faith but have not been circumcised. (laughs) Did I read that too fast? So Abraham is the spiritual father of those who have been faith, have had faith, but have not been circumcised. They are counted as righteousness, uh, as righteous because of their faith. And Abraham is also the spiritual father of those who have been circumcised, but only if they have the same kind of faith Abraham had. What he's saying there is those who haven't been circumcised, the Gentiles, the people who weren't Jewish, Abraham's their father. You know why? Because they had the same kind of faith that Abraham had way before he was circumcised. That's why they can be Father Abraham and I am one of them. You hear what I'm saying? But he says, and also, Abraham is the father of those who have been circumcised. Obviously. Actually, you know what? Not so obviously. Only if they have the kind of faith that Abraham had before he was circumcised. And what he's trying to say is that circumcision really has nothing to do with it now. That was just a sign back then. It was a pointing ahead to what the real issue is, the real deal. You guys hear what I'm saying? Actually, what? Paul's saying? Clearly, God's promise to give the whole earth to Abraham and his descendants, because that was part of the Abrahamic covenant, the covenant he made with Abraham, was not based on his obedience to God's law, but on a right relationship with God that comes by faith. If, God promise, if God's promises, if God's promise is only for those who obey the law, 
then faith is not necessary and the promise is pointless. Did you hear that? You ever thought about that? Another way to say that in the way that we deal with things is this. If God's promise is only for those who work their fingers to the bone to prove their love for God, then faith is not necessary and the promise is pointless. The promise is pointless if we have to earn our salvation, earn God's favor, make God pleased with me by what I do. You getting it? So the promise is received by faith. It is given as a free gift, and we are all certain to receive it. Whether or not we live according to the law of Moses or not, if we have faith like Abraham's faith. For Abraham is the father of all who believe. That is what the scriptures mean when God told us, I have made you the father of many nations. This happened because Abraham believed in the God who brings the dead back to life and who creates new things out of nothing. And I think we can stop there. In case it's not already obvious what the main point of what we talked about tonight is, if you in any way, including myself, because this is where God's been convicting me, if you in any way because of daddy issues, mommy issues, lack of understanding, whatever the reasons, have been working your fingers to the bone to please God instead of doing what Mary did, choosing the good part and sitting at his feet. You guys remember the story of Mary and Martha? Martha was the one busying, it says, busying herself with many things. Martha, why are you busying yourself with many things? You should be like Mary who has chosen the good part. Not that the many things don't have to get done, but what Jesus is saying is like he said in other places, if you'll just seek first the kingdom, understand belief, faith, all of those things, all that other stuff's going to work itself out. You'll have plenty of energy. You'll have plenty of discernment. You'll have wisdom. All the things that you are kind of working to get. You guys know what I'm talking about? If I just do this, if I just do this, I'll have the understanding I need to make this decision. If I just do this, if I just do this, then I'll have the discernment to whatever. And it doesn't work that way. We would never maybe kind of link that back to the law and to, and to the, being a Pharisee and to, you know, all that stuff, but it does. Anything less than choosing the good part means that in an in a odd kind of a way, we are boasting in our own works. Amen? Would you guys stand? You know, a flip side of that analogy I gave at the beginning about the bride and the groom. What an insult for the groom, for some heckler in the crowd to say, you're you're not here for her, you're just here because of the cake. It's somewhat of an insult, wouldn't you guys agree? But what even more of an insult for someone to stand up 
and accuse the bride of only being there for the cake. And I think sometimes that's part of it. We're just there for the cake. We're there for the decision that we need to make. We're there for the whatever it is that we need. And instead of choosing the good part, sitting right there, eye to eye with the groom as the bride, eye to eye with the groom, face to face with God, which is that word panim in the Greek. It basically means, you know, face to face. I'm sorry, actually in the Hebrew, to worship, to be with him, to be face to face with him. But sometimes that's not really what we're after. We just do enough of that just to get the cake. And I think God wants to speak to us. It's like, man, I just, just like he wanted the Jewish people of that day, I just, I just want you to understand why I'm really here. I just want you to understand the benefit of this relationship. The trouble that I went through to ask the father, <laughs> you know what I mean, to buy the ring, the trouble I went through to go to the cross, the joy set before me that one day we could stand on the altar face to face. Amen. Can I pray for you?